our beer of the week this week is a Pilsner. It's actually called Fort Millsner because from our friends down in Fort Mill, South Carolina. I don't want to neglect our South Carolina fans like Tepper did. And we have a lot of Tepper stuff to talk about today because he had a presser. So let's get right into it. I think that's fair that you mentioned the South Carolina family, especially with the state-of-the-art practice facility that was supposed to go in just further south in Rock Hill. And sure enough, David Tepper this morning at 10.30 a.m. had a about 15-minute press conference with the media about uh, the firing of Frank Reich, the future of this organization. And it's very interesting to see where we'll go. I was... I mean, there weren't a lot of bright takeaways. He said he took full responsibility, but was that what you wanted to hear from the owner after everything that's gone down, not only this season, but over the past five or six years that he's owned the team? Uh, Well, the little uh, responsibility that he did claim, I'm proud of him for doing that, but I wanted him to talk about the football team. You know, he spent a good portion of that press conference, which was basically an interview because a lot of the questions were filtered and, were sent to kind of prop him up. He just spent it talking about the entertainment side of it, how he's brought concerts to the stadium, how he brought Charlotte FC here, which is a good thing. I love having uh, our local football club. And uh, one of the big things he talked about was uh, seeing the fans when Lionel Messi, who plays for Inter-Miami, took the field. And I'm like, what does that have to do with the football team? If that's one of the biggest highlights for our fans is seeing now great granted he's the greatest soccer player footballer of all time one of the best athletes ever but if that is the highlight for the local fans during some during your tenure here like that's not a good thing you know we're 30 what is it 30 and 63 now since tepper's been the owner so like mm-hmm. just talk some more about the football stuff and the football questions were very limited and then he wouldn't even answer the uh the scott fitterer question that joe person asked as he was leaving the podium. Well, that was the thing. He was getting off the stage at that point. He had walked away from the mic. And like you said, he avoided questions from Scott Fowler, Sheena Quick. Uh, He really didn't want to get into the nitty gritty stuff. And it was very pick and choose. And like you said, he wanted to talk about other things that were going on in Charlotte. And the, the events that he's bringing, the MLS team here, it's the reason why we have turf in the stadium instead of grass. Mm-hmm. And that that hurts our players. So again, anything positive that you could have talked about with the team just really wasn't reflective with that statement. And it's just, it's shocking. It, it makes me worry that we aren't going to make the right changes this offseason, bring in the right nucleus, because we got really hype about right in this staff in the offseason. I thought rightfully so, but it all came falling apart uh, within a matter of, uh, what, 12 weeks? Yeah, uh, this was week 12. We had the one bye week, but yeah, 11 games and it all fell apart. And there, there was a lot of stuff that came out today from multiple sources. But regarding his press conference, the two main things that I took away, aside from him propping up his uh, entertainment ventures with the, the team in the stadium, is that, one, he talked about the decision between Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, how the, he put put to rest the rumor of it. He said, we were going to trade up to number two and we were going to take Stroud because we thought the Texans would take Bryce because the, most of the league viewed Bryce as the number one QB prospect. And he said, no, we, uh, we ended up trading to one and we were good with taking Bryce Young. And it was almost unanimous. And then he said it was fully unanimous later. Um, and then the other one I wanted to talk about was Somebody asked him, I believe it was the very first question 
uh, yeah, I think it was the first question from Joe Person. They said, are you going to use a an outside firm during the next head coaching hire? Which Was, uh, it, was I, it Joe Person or David Newton? It was one of the two that, yeah, shot it, back. It may have like, been David know. Newton. Uh, yeah, I just know Person had two questions. I mean, there were only like five questions asked, asked but he, uh, he wasn't committed to saying that he would use an outside hiring firm. And that's kind of a, uh, a negative for me because he hasn't been particularly successful in his own uh, – like core group or inner circle in terms of hiring the football people we have in the off or in the stadium. Now, like I think we can agree Matt rule was not the best hire, um, which is weird to say because he did better uh, during his tenure than uh, Frank Reich did. I don't think we can say that Scott Fitterer has been particularly successful. Obviously Frank Reich wasn't successful in his time here. And uh, it's just all the people he's brought in haven't had the success that he preaches uh, about wanting. He said, I'd like to have a head coach here for 20 or 30 years, maybe. Uh, and that's just, that's just not going to happen. But I, yeah, just this, this presser, it wasn't revealing at all, really, but in a way it was some of, some of his, uh, his mindset on a couple of things. Just organizational structure. Um, I understand him coming from the finance industry. You can find bright minds, you can keep your core people together, like he's saying, these 20, 30 year spans. But for for the most part, even like an Andy Reid, he struggled to get to about 15 years with the Eagles. And uh, Bill Belichick, despite six Super Bowl winning titles with the New England Patriots, he's on arguably a hot seat in New England. And he's mm -hmm. been there for about 20 years. It's like even the best of the best don't even make it that long and so at this point like that shouldn't be the vision that shouldn't be the goal that shouldn't be the mindset and and this is the stuff that we're hearing come straight from his mouth and it's it's disheartening because again you do need to be looking outside yourself matt rule the interview is he went to matt rule's house hired him the next day in essence uh mm -hmm. frank Reich, there was a little bit more uh, in depth with the process but i know his wife was still involved with that and it's just you can't come from a business mindset trying to find the next guy i think that's it helped jerry richardson uh when he hired john fox and ron rivera and i i wouldn't say they were a tier or s tier coaches in a sense of we're doing a ranking but those were solid guys that could like control a locker room and that's not something that tepper's been able to even bring in and uh, here at carolina well i would say the difference with uh, jerry richardson is he was a football guy you know he'd been mm -hmm. in and around football his life so he knew when he was interviewing people the qualities needed in a head coach because he'd been around head coaches, right? And while Tepper has been a minority owner for the Steelers prior to taking over the Panthers, I, he's not a football guy. He made his living as a hedge fund manager, and he, he's made quite a living. Uh, there, we can't disparage him there, but he's just not a a quote unquote football guy. I don't know if he knows what it takes. There, I mean, there's reports that he was one of the people back when he was in Pittsburgh that wanted Mike Tomlin gone. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's true or not, but. We, we, I think we can say Tomlin's been the most successful coach in terms of uh, regular season longevity that we've seen maybe ever. He's on, what, 13 or 14 years now without a losing record. So yeah. he clearly knows what he's doing there. It's just not a lot of uh, good things have come from Tepper making the decisions regarding the, the football management side of it. And I would like to see an outside hiring firm at least consulted on the next hire because, again, this is the third time that he's fired a coach and all of them have been – end season so there's time at least for a firm to scout out uh potential good head coaching candidates so i, I don't know i just want to see somebody other than tepper making the full decision there
Yeah. And he, he brought up in his presser how he has like the final say and stuff. It's like, I, I, I would even remove that from, from kind of his, his range of ability, the effect kind of this franchise, you, you bring in your general manager, whoever you deem that to be, and they hire the coach and they make the decisions. And I, I know that I've seen a couple of different accounts where they kind of show ownership involvement. It's a lot of times like this, this disparity of like, oh, well, Tepper's just micromanaging and then they'll show other owners uh, just taking pictures with their players and being involved and just being present. And there's a difference in that. You you don't want an owner who's overstepping his bounds and making making the decisions, whether it be personnel or uh, more schematic type stuff with bringing in coaches. It, it needs to be, hey, you you make sure that the people that are in this this room, this building, feel like a family. And that that kind of mantra is the reason why we had Sam Mills come back and coach in the Carolina. It was it was very family oriented. And, and as a community, you felt part of it like that growing up. That's one of the big reasons that the the Panthers I was drawn to outside of just living in the state was that camaraderie that keep pounding. Um, and we've we've lost that over the past few years. We, we do not have an identity and it's it's just sad to see. So. Um, I know we uh, kind of delved into that for a few minutes. Uh, I'm your host, Stephen Patton, joined by my co-host, Jacob LaCroix, here on Perfect Takes. Uh, we'll get into the Titans game review, obviously, with the Reich firing. We'll get more into that uh, after we cover the game. Just just a lot to get into. Um, it's it's kind of crazy midseason to have kind of all this, this hoopla, because this is something that we did last year with Rule, but uh, here we are again. Well, this is the most uh, hoopla or... Uh, active the fan base has been all year essentially with uh this is like the quote good news that we've received like it's just been beat down after beat down on the football field and like kind of iffy stuff and pressers and people taking play calling and giving it away and taking it back and stuff like that but we finally have a at least a a path moving forward i don't know if it's a good or a bad one but we have the path moving forward the rest of the season uh the special teams coordinator chris Tabor is the interim head coach now he did that when he was in chicago as well so he has some experience there he spoke today and he seemed like he knew what he was doing uh at the podium in regards to running the team but uh regarding that titans game it was another rough outing right this was a game that i thought we could win just because i thought you know will levis hasn't played super well their offense isn't moving the ball at all, kind of like our offense. And while their defensive line is stout, their defensive secondary wasn't great, but it was still another rough day. Uh, I haven't seen the official pressure numbers yet, but it looked like another really bad performance by our offensive line, especially in the interior where there were so many injuries. Uh, There's another strip sack that Icky allowed. It was like a one and a half second and just got to Arden Key, got to Bryce, stripped him, and Jeffrey Simmons recovered. Those those guys, along with, uh, what is it, Tyre Tart, were really wreaking havoc on our line all day. I mean, the Titans' defensive line is, uh, they're, they're sneaky good. They're one of the best in the mm-hmm. league. Uh, Jeffrey Simmons, Arden Key, I mean, that was the one-two punch on the fumble. Arden Key came around with the sack strip, and Jeffrey Simmons kind of cleaned up, and that led to a Derrick Henry touchdown. It kind of really put the game out of reach for us. Um, and I, I want to touch on those O-line uh, concerns because the issue is is we had Zavala and Cade Mays as the starters going into the game, and they're backups. They were not supposed mm-hmm. to, to be the starters this year. It was supposed to be Austin Corbett and Brady Christensen, both of whom are right now on IR. Um, and when they go down at, like, I think it was about the halfway point in the game, 
you're on third string guards and that's not a strength of our team so it's just it didn't allow us to move the ball we were getting holding calls on on drives in the second half when we had the ability to at least get within uh, field goal range because it was a seven point game for most of the second half after we scored that touchdown uh, and we couldn't do anything about it. And it was just a holding call would wipe out a drive, a sack would wipe out a drive. And it, it felt like every yard we we pushed the ball down the field was, was hard fought and earned. Like there were no easy buttons, there were no easy completions. Uh, there was no uh, easy explosive play just waiting to happen. Uh, everything felt really forced. Yeah, uh, you talk about how we were down to uh, we was Brett Toth, who we just signed last week, and Nash Jensen, who was an undrafted free agent, uh, who were playing the two guard spots. Calvin Throckmorton, the guy that started, uh, it was right guard most of the year, he was on the Titans' sideline. Remember, they cut him a couple of weeks ago, and the Titans picked him up on waivers. So, like, that's just a mm-hmm. – uh, it's, it's like a whole, uh, I don't know, like systemic failure that the team's been doing. Uh, with the offense, particularly the offense. But like you're saying, there are no easy yards. I thought Bryce actually had his best game post or yeah, post the bye week. He was doing a really good job evading pressure when he was able to move up in the pocket. Granted, he was still sacked, I think, four times. But uh, he, he broke a couple tackles from guys like Jeffrey Simmons, who were like 100 pounds heavier than him. So I was impressed there, and he was able to use his legs a lot. But even then, like – down the field, I know Mingo had that really wacky catch attempt. Uh, I think DJ Chark dropped another one. And then on the very first offensive drive where we were moving the ball, it was a little nice route uh, down the sideline to Mingo. Uh, Amir, Amir Smith-Marset caught a 14-yard screen. Uh, I don't think he got another target since then. So that was just weird that he was productive, then got taken out. And then on third and one, Frank Wright draws up a play to throw, not even pitch it to uh, Miles Sanders, but for Bryce to turn and throw it backwards uh, and lose yards on a third and one. I I don't, I just don't know what was going on. And uh, I think that was just another uh, symptom of Frank Reich's uh, time here, especially as a play caller. But moving forward, it looks like uh, we're going to have Thomas Brown calling plays with Jim Caldwell, assisting him on the offensive side of the ball. So it looks like Thomas Brown will get another crack at it. And hopefully he does better this time around. Yeah, I, we've talked about this at length on prior episodes, but it's like, how, how much does the playbook really expand? Like, that's something mm-hmm. you work on a lot in the offseason. It's why there wasn't a lot of change between the two. The big, big change I noticed in terms of like play calling was, is Thomas Brown did use a little bit more motion than Frank Reich, but he wasn't using more play action. Um, and then like the the pretty much the play that ended the game, the screen pass, Frank Reich says in pretty much the press conference after the game that, had had they hit a couple of their blocks, it could have gone for a score. And he's not wrong. Like they had the numbers there, but Thielen doesn't hold his block. Icky doesn't get up to the next level. And the the defenders are able to, to make the tackle in space and the game's over. Um, so it's just, it's stuff like that with execution, making sure we have the right guys on the field, um, pretty much following their assignments. And, and you've brought up Icky. And this is something that I've, I've gotten into some Twitter discourse about, and we've we've had discussions at length. But I think it's time that if it's not during the middle of this season, just because that would throw a, a huge wrench into a mess that our O-line already is. But next offseason, we need to consider him moving him the left guard. Um, his footwork is a liability out on an island on the edge where that can kind of get masked inside. And his running ability, him being a big body and big presence, he's a strong dude. Um, I just, I, I don't know if I want him out at left tackle anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'm pulling up, um, 
my notes on him from that draft. And it was uh, uh, noticeably raw. Yeah, he loses speed rushes a lot with something I said. Stunts were particularly difficult. He's aggressive blocking and loses to outside rushers a lot. And that's something we saw his rookie year, granted, when Steve Wilkes took over, he kind of masked that with the power run game. But going back to a pass-heavier offense, he's continued to struggle with that and hasn't really gotten better at his weaknesses, which is something you want to see with your first-round rookie. Uh, sixth overall pick, I believe, so top 10 yep. pick rookie as well, who went before Evan Neal, who's also struggling, and Charles Cross, who was really good in uh, pass protection he his is. rookie year. And uh, he's been banged up a bit this year. But it's just kind of disheartening to see – uh, kind of the performance from the number six overall pick there, especially when he's important to the development of the number one overall pick QB that you drafted and traded so much draft capital for. Yeah, I, I can definitely see the argument to move him to left guard or at least give him reps there and let somebody else try some reps at left tackle, maybe in the preseason or something to try and see if that would work out there. But yeah, during this season, it's just uh, just really, really disheartening there. And, and the thing is, is this just shows you why Tepper needs to be removed from this hiring process, because it, it was a lot of promises from the front office, uh, a lot of optimism from the coaching staff about how this team would look like. And yes, Iki Aquanu fits really well into a, a heavy power run game system, uh, an offense that a guy like Steve Wilkes would love to deploy, that, that worked in Ben McAdoo's favor as the offensive coordinator. That's why they drafted him. He fit the bill for what Matt Rule wanted to do. And if you're going to turn the offense and, and flip it on its head, then the expectations have to go down. And, and that's just, it, it wasn't an ease into it. I will say in Reich's final game, um, something that we saw uh, previous week against Dallas was a, a heavier usage of 12 personnel. It didn't work out for us in terms of an efficiency standpoint, but we ran 12 and 13 personnel for about 28% of the snaps, which is pretty impressive because for a long portion of the season, we were running 90% 11 personnel. Um, so to get a, brush, a breath of fresh air from that standpoint, to, to see more from Sullivan, uh, who's come on as a solid pass catching tight end, uh, we need to get Tommy Tremble obviously more involved because he's a great blocker and has the ability to kind of make plays after the catch. So hopefully we'll see more of that with Thomas Brown. I don't know, but that would be the hope, especially with Jim Caldwell also having an influence on the offense now. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to see how the offense looks. And like you said, Sullivan's our best pass catching tight end right now. And Tommy Tremble is incredibly effective in the red zone. So hopefully we can see more of them on the field together in some 12 or 13 uh, personnel packages. But uh, moving forward, now that Frank Reich is no longer the head coach, we're obviously going to be looking for a new head coach. And there's there's the big name out there. You know, Ben Johnson is the guy that Tepper reportedly wanted last year. And he turned down interviews and decided to stay in Detroit and has their offense humming at maybe even in even a higher level than last year. I don't know like the EPA numbers or the success rate numbers, but it seems like their offense is doing pretty well. And uh, there's a lot of other obvious candidates like Mike McDonald, who you like, uh, Kellen Moore, who was the runner up in last year's coaching search. He, uh, he apparently told the people in Dallas after the interview that it had come down to him and Frank Reich and obviously the Panthers chose Reich. So that's a guy that uh, Tepper has some respect for. Ajiro Evero, who's on our staff, uh, done a tremendous job with the defense given the injuries i would say and then guys like bobby slowick i think are on the come up with what he's doing down in uh houston with cj stroud but um i'm curious to hear who are some of the guys that you want as the new head coach 
Um, from a presence, and I think this is uh, this is scheme aside. This is uh, what they've done from a production standpoint aside. Uh, when we're talking about guys that uh, interview well, can kind of hold a presence in a press conference, uh, I was going through kind of just some of the um, different interviews that Ben Johnson had, Mike McDonald had, Shane Waldron had, Kellen Moore had, and I was most impressed by Ben Johnson. This is a guy that um, he coached under Dan Campbell, and prior to that, coached under Matt Patricia, so he has ties to Sean Payton and Bill Belichick, and uh, he's he's very successful in 21 personnel, which is a personnel package that Josh McDaniels was really successful with uh, during the last few years with Tom Brady in New England. And there's I, I know a lot of people want to talk about outside zone with a lot of the Kyle Shanahan, but there's some inside zone runs that they like using. It opens up the, the, the passing game and it is really reliant on a strong offensive line. And that's that's what he has up in Detroit. Um, my, my concern would be is I think he would try to bring in uh, a more militant approach or patriot way as it's been termed over the past few weeks with some of the Josh McDaniels stuff going down in Las Vegas. And my concern would be is that with our offensive line, if we brought him in and the results weren't instant, if all of a sudden we wouldn't have some of those same narratives throughout the building. And so that that is the one thing that concerns me with Ben Johnson. I think he's a great candidate. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to add with that before I we go into, I think, who my favorite candidate of this pool is uh, and Mike McDonald. But out of Ben Johnson, is there stuff that you like, want to see him bring from Detroit to Carolina? Uh, he definitely is able to generate a lot of explosive plays, which would bring a much needed juice to this offense. Well, one thing I'd like him to bring, if he ends up being the head coach and play caller, is that our personnel packages, not even 11, 12, 21, whatever, but the players we have on the field, we've talked at length how it's always been Thielen, Mingo, and Chark for the wide receivers, and it's either Sanders or Chuba Hubbard as the running back, but... In Detroit, he likes to mix his players around and use their strengths. Like you see J-Mo take the field. You see Josh Reynolds, uh, Khalif Raymond. Obviously, Monra St. Brown is the star there, but he likes to rotate some of the receivers. Uh, Sam Laporta is their rookie star tight end, but he uses Brock Wright a lot on uh, some blocking and uh, like kind of misdirection concepts there. He mixes uh, David Montgomery and rookie Jameer Gibbs up pretty well. And even when Craig Reynolds had to come in to spell them, he uses them pretty well. So he's pretty good at... Uh, playing to his player's strengths, which is something we haven't really seen here this year in Carolina. So that's one of the things that I would enjoy him being able to bring should he be the head coach here. And I saw a pretty uh, promising argument on Twitter that when the Rams were, it was what, 2016 before McVay took over, they were just hapless. They didn't have a first round pick because they had traded it uh, in the golf trade. Golf didn't look good his rookie year and everything was looking down. But when they brought McVay in, everything looked up like obviously they didn't have that first but they were able to work stuff out on the offense and stuff like that and i think that a guy like ben johnson can be kind of our mcveigh in terms of turning stuff around i know you're more partial to a guy from the mcveigh tree but uh that's just kind of how i feel about ben johnson as a candidate i think he should and probably will be the number one candidate that tepper goes after and you talk about that rams team i mean they had a quarterback that was arguably uh, comparable to Bryce Young's strengths in terms mm -hmm. of a guy that's a point guard that can the get the ball to where it needs to go 
accurate and on time. And and Jared Goff's rookie season was abysmal. There was there was nothing working great for that offense under Jeff Fisher in 2016. So a lot can change in a year, and a guy like Ben Johnson can do that. Um, you you want to bring in uh, or talk about a guy that is also from a McVay tree that you touched on that I like, and that's Shane Waldron in Seattle. Uh, he spent in the early 2000s actually time with Bill Belichick. So I think he was on the same staff um, with Josh McDaniels, Bill O'Brien. Um, I think he had some crossover with Brian Dable. So a lot of a lot of good offensive minds on top of being on a staff with Bill Belichick and then spent some time in college, came back. He's with Sean McVay uh, his last year in Washington, follows him to L.A., and then he became the Seahawks offensive coordinator the last two years that Russ was there. And a lot of people were saying, let Russ cook, let Russ cook, let Russ cook, and he was productive. It seemed like the offense was holding him back. He goes to Denver, immediately falls apart, and in his place was Geno Smith, a guy that they were able to develop. And I think a lot of that needs to go to what Shane Waldron is doing. He's very creative in 12 and 13 personnel, having extra blockers. He hasn't dealt with a great offensive line like Ben Johnson has had in Detroit. And so the fact that he's been fairly productive has put up average production with a guy like Geno Smith has, has cracked the top 10 in points with a guy like Russell Wilson. Like this is a guy that is going to be underneath the radar, but knows his stuff uh, has been around the NFL a bunch knows kind of what's going on. And I think he'd be a great fit here in Carolina, especially as we rebuild this offensive line. Yeah. I think uh, the offensive choice is definitely going to be a popular one given how we want to help develop Bryce Young. But uh, there's some defensive candidates out there that are pretty good, too. I talked about Ejiro Evero being a guy that is probably going to get an interview here. And he's done well both in Denver last year where he had historic defenses for the first part of the year. And then he's done well here uh, given the injuries. But there's another defensive guy that you like out there, isn't there? I mean, the Baltimore Ravens. We talked about it going into the season. Uh, you were you were high on Matabuke? Matabuke? Yeah, um, Justin Matabuke, yeah. There we go. There we go. I knew there was a B in there. And they obviously, they do sign Jadavian Clowney, but like we talked about, they'll sign a 33, 34-year-old edge rusher. Uh, and and uh, Clowney's been backs. very productive this year, by the way, and especially in the run game. Oh, he has. And that's what I'm saying. Like they're, they're very well known for just grabbing guys off the street and they produce. And some of his pressure concepts, the way he'll put guys on the line, the simulate pressure, and then drop seven back still. It's just very unique. And at the beginning of the season, they had a lot of injuries on defense, and it didn't seem to matter. And I know we talk about Evero getting production from our defense with a lot of injuries, but this is something McDonald's been known for the past two years in Baltimore. He had time in Michigan as the defensive coordinator uh, under Jim Harbaugh. So between both Harbaugh's, uh, he's had experience. And then prior to that, he was the linebackers coach for Baltimore. So uh, you talk about bringing a guy that has a nose for the football, um, has the ability to have his players play hard and play right in structure. That's exactly what you want. I feel like if we brought him in, uh, we could very well bring in their director of player personnel right now, who is uh, Joe Hertz. Uh, he's been, I think, their uh, director of college scouting for, for about a decade prior to taking the position. And if you bring in those two guys from a franchise that knows what it's doing, they could turn this franchise around. This is a, a, a historically well-known defensive team. Um, I'm not saying that's how you're going to win games, but having a, a, a no-nonsense uh, kind of policy 
um, like that, that, that's something I think he brings to this organization. And that's, that's what's going to be needed because Matt rule, uh, way too lackadaisical, uh, Reich did not seem to have enough attention to detail as his in-game management showed. And I think Mike McDonald would fix that overnight. Yeah, I certainly think McDonald's probably the number one defensive candidate. He's been one of the best play callers in your play caller rankings throughout the year. Uh, he's probably been my favorite defensive coordinator to watch and see how he schemes stuff up. And you're right, they have been doing it with a lot of injuries, particularly on the back end. I mean, I think they're still without Marlon Humphrey, so they're doing this with uh, depth chart corners, and their defense is still humming. Uh, I want to do a little game real quick before we move on. Like, I'm going to give you two candidates. you got to pick which one you would want there. <laughs> Uh, and then we'll we'll start with some of the ones that I have listed as under the radar. How about uh, the Dolphins offensive coordinator, Frank Smith, versus the Buccaneers offensive coordinator, Dave Canales? I know they're both uh, are respected around the league and both have been talked about as uh, future head coaches. Um, I would probably pull the guy that has more ties to the Shanahan tree and Frank Smith. I don't like either one of these guys. Dave Canales was the quarterback coach for the Seattle Seahawks, so he's under Shane Waldron the past couple of years. Um, I, I think he has a nose for the ball. He's schemed up uh, what the Buccaneers have done uh, this year pretty well. He's had guys open. Uh, he's worked with the offensive line he had coming into the year. And obviously he had Tristan worse, but the rest of that offensive line was kind of in shambles and he's made it work. So um, de definitely quality candidates. I think they need to prove themselves more in the NFL before having some of these interviews. But like you said, they're, they're hot names going around. Uh, they're well-respected guys in the NFL and they'll probably get their uh, chance sooner rather than later. All right. I understand that one. How about some uh, up and coming new play callers? I got to say new in parentheses, but uh, Bobby Slowick uh, down in Houston and Eric Bienemy, who's a full time play caller for the first time in Washington this year. Uh, with what we're doing in Carolina, we need as many easy buttons as we can for a quarterback. I feel like with Eric Bienemy, they run a very complex West Coast offense. And if we don't have the offensive line or the wide receivers who can get open, I think it just complicates uh, a lot of the issues that we already have on offense. Um, so in this case, I would lean more towards uh, the young hotshot in Bobby Slowick. Gotcha. All right. And I have one more for you. This is coming from the college ranks. Jim Harbaugh or Lincoln Riley? Uh, this is going to be an easy one. Jim Harbaugh has had mm -hmm. success in the NFL. Um, I think he'll butt heads with the owner, whoever, wherever he goes in the NFL, if he makes a return after this year in Michigan, um, I think Lincoln Riley, uh, is going to have like a Cliff Kingsbury arc. He'll have a few things on offense that are very unique that work. Uh, we saw it with Chip Kelly in Philadelphia. Uh, but once they get kind of figured out with their, like a lot of what these guys do is more recruiting. And I think the talent level is just too close at the NFL for that to really make a difference. I agree. We see with Lincoln now playing in a conference that has good teams and play defense, how their team has faltered against better teams like Washington, Oregon, even Utah. I don't think uh, they've beaten Utah during their tenure there. Uh, I think 0-3, I believe. But uh, all right, one more. And this is both Patriots guys. Bill O'Brien, who was Bryce Young's play caller for two years at Alabama, or Bill Belichick, who is rumored to be leaving the Patriots after this year, despite just signing his new extension. I, I don't get the um, Belichick on the move arguments or reports that are out there. 
Uh, but if I had to choose between the two, it's definitely going to be Belichick. Um, Belichick's been the guy who's had success in the NFL. Bill O'Brien uh, wasn't too bad in Houston, but um, one has definitely had more success with operating personnel and coaching where the other really hasn't. Um, not saying that Belichick's done a great job with personnel over the past few years, but it's one of those things that he did build Super Bowl rosters. He knew when to let certain guys walk. Uh, we saw it with J.C. Jackson. I think we saw it with Trent Brown in recent years. And Jamie Collins to, is a big one. Yeah, and those guys all left, got paid. They either got cut or they were traded back on pennies on the dollar. And it's it's those kind of decisions that we need in this building because I feel like we hand out contracts to people that we shouldn't, and then we don't sign the players that we should. Um, so if, if I had to have the choice between those two, it'd be Belichick, but I, I think Bill O'Brien is going to, um, either step down as play caller or he's going to retire from the NFL and we'll see Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick reunion here in new England next year. That's fair. I also just thought of one more. So we're going to do one more, one more. And it's, uh, two people closely related to your play caller rankings in Dan Quinn and Kellen Moore, which one? Which one? That's a good one. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a lot to be made about Dan Quinn's time in Atlanta. I think the fact that Kyle Shanahan was his OC uh, sheds a lot of light on kind of the coaching there. So he could definitely influence a offensive play caller coming to coach for him. But I wasn't impressed with his defense. And if we're going to hire a defensive coach, I would want to be impressed with the defense he has in the building as he's the head coach. And I think at that rate, I'm going to go with the less – unproven route because retreads aren't really known to be successful. And I would, I would choose Kellen Moore in this situation. Uh, I think he does a good job scheming the offense. Uh, he's played quarterback um, both at college and the NFL level. And he has a lot of respect. He's a little goofy in his press conferences. And, uh, but I think Shane Waldron and some of the other guys can, can have a little bit of that effect in the press conference as well. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as a knock against them. Yeah, we talk about Kellen Moore as maybe a guy that might stay in the L.A. Chargers if they end up moving on from Brandon Staley. I know we talked yesterday and you thought that might be a uh, a dirt cutter type situation that happened uh, a while back. But there's definitely a lot of interesting names out there. And I think we're in agreement with guys like Ben Johnson, Mike McDonald and Shane Waldron. Shane Waldron, excuse me, being some of the top candidates there for our new head coaching job. And then hopefully we get a new GM to come with them, but that hasn't been addressed yet. And obviously David Tepper chose not to address that today. So we'll have to move on to kind of the stuff that happened this past week. Yeah. So the, the one game we want to talk about, obviously the uh, big Eagles bills game was kind of the highlight of the Sunday afternoon, uh, great overtime game, arguably one of the better games of the season. Uh, considering that there was rain too, it was it was very impressive to see it go back and forth the way it did. Um, and I, I'm just rambling on a rabbit trail now, but the game we want to talk about is actually one that has more draft implications, and that was the game against the Patriots and the Giants in the Meadowlands. And I, the the Patriots' defense, honestly, we've seen them against the Colts in previous weeks. We've seen them against the Giants here. Um, they, they held up their end of the bargain. It's that they have zero, zero juice on offense. I mean, we talk about our offense being bad here in Carolina. Uh, they've, they've hit rock bottom over there in new England. Yeah, absolutely. You talked about the bills and, uh, Eagles game being the highlight. Well, this was the low light for sure of the Sunday slate of games. Uh, we can see that Mac Jones was benched again. I think this is like the third or fourth time that he's been benched this year. It's kind of for wild. whatever reason. Yeah. It, it's just incredibly wild and Bailey Zappi comes in at halftime and leads them 
uh, to a 7-10. I wrote victory here in italics because it means they move up in the draft ranking, but they ended up losing to the Giants. Uh, and it was just a horrendous game on offense. And you talk about how the defense did the job, but actually the Patriots outgained the Giants uh, in terms of yards, particularly in rushing yards. They had a better time of possession, converted uh, the same number of third downs, converted both of their fourth down attempts. Uh, they had the they had the edge in the play count. They had 18 more plays. They allowed less sacks. They punted less, had fewer penalties. But it came down to those turnovers. Mac Jones with two interceptions and Bailey Zappi with one interception. And it's just unsustainable quarterback play there in New England. And granted, they are dealing with a really bad O-line. Their only good pass catcher went down earlier in the year, uh, Kendrick Bourne. I believe it was ACL with him. But Demario uh, Douglas. But yeah, outside but, of him, yeah. There, there's really nothing. Well, I recall uh, when we were looking at the Panthers uh, wide receiver scores there, I think I was looking at the open score. All of the Patriots receivers were below or equal to Jonathan Mingo, who was 104 out of 114 at that time. Now, it could have changed because that was a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it just kind of highlights how bad the skill positions are there in New England. And the, I mean, with the offensive line banged up like that, too, they're in a pretty similar situation to us. But like you said, it's somehow worse. Yeah, and what's shocking is is that I a lot of the issues that seemed to be with that offense was was timing with routes and and the drop um, for the quarterback like the drop back and that's something that like if you look at Dallas it seems to be very much on point when Drak and Dak hits the back of his drop it, the ball's out of his hands and it's just mm -hmm. quick it's decisive and you don't see that in New England and that was what Bill O'Brien was supposed to fix from the Matt Patricia led offense last year and if anything it's regressed and like you said there's obviously separation issues but some of that's got to be from a schematic and timing standpoint and it's just it's it's unfortunate but it's one of those things that bill belichick he's been such a good coach for so long that is he about to go through that popovich stretch where you have a few bad years you luck in on a really really good draft class and where where popovich just got wemby uh does belichick get drake may and that's this this game really decided some of those draft seating um because the cardinals they get kyler murray back if they win a couple games to end the year uh, the Patriots don't look like they're going to win a game. So it looks like their third overall pick right now as the draft order stands could turn into a second and or first, which gives you the the ability to take a Drake May or Caleb Williams, which is a game changer for a franchise. Yeah, looking at their schedule for the rest of the year, uh, Chargers, Steelers, Chiefs, Broncos, Bills, Jets. Maybe they beat the Jets at the Maybe. end of the year because they're hosting them. But uh, even then, it's a stretch. Did they beat the Jets? Yeah, they did beat the Jets earlier this year. And they do have that streak against the Jets. So maybe we can count on that. But like you said, this might be a team that is looking for a new QB with a top three draft pick. And it is kind of disappointing because Mac's rookie year, he didn't uh, – he wasn't outstanding by any means. He did have a good rookie year and led him to the playoffs. But he looked like an NFL player, right? But since then, he's regressed to the point of a replacement level QB or worse. And so I think they are going to have to end up t spending that high draft pick on a Drake May, on a Caleb Williams. If they if they do win a couple games and fall out of like the top five, maybe they like Jaden Daniels or something like that. But it is kind of disheartening to see there. And the New York Giants aren't in much of a better position either because they are tied to Daniel Jones, I believe, through next year. I think after that, they can cut him. But he's coming off of a season-ending injury next year. He didn't look particularly good this year at all. Uh, I believe Saquon is, isn't Saquon a free agent uh, coming up this year, too? They Yeah, they just tagged him this past mm -hmm. year, so he should be 
coming off the and, book. And the rest of their offensive skill players don't inspire a ton of confidence either. Now, granted, Jalen Hyatt did perform well in this game, five catches for 109 yards. But uh, it's him and, like, Isaiah Hodgins finally got involved this week. Uh, but he only had one catch for the touchdown. And then, like, guys like Darius Slayton, uh, Wondell Robinson, Sterling Shepard. It's just all slot receivers. There's no real diversity there. So they also are a team that's going to have to look to uh, take a, a highly valued offensive player high in the draft. I don't know quite where they stack up now. I'm going to look at a tankathon real quick. But, yeah, they, they have the sixth pick currently. So they could be a guy that's in the mix for, like, uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. or Malik Neighbors or something. But their outlook isn't too much brighter than the Patriots, considering the Patriots could have a new face of the franchise next year. Yeah, and it's one of those things that they're going to have a top 10 pick and it's going to be a question that the Giants front office is going to have to ask themselves if they want to go like a, a Jaden Daniels route uh, right there in the first. I know you're you're very fond of this wide receiver class. You think it's very deep and it's if you, you can then go after wide receiver in the second or third round, you can kind of bolster the defense through free agency. They have a stout defensive line. Uh, so it's some of those things that you just wonder how they're going to pivot. It'll be very interesting to see kind of how Brian Dable and Joe Shine go about it. I know there's there's actually some uh, beef, or at least there was going in the Sunday's matchup between uh, Wink Martindale and Brian Dable, and they could part at the end of this season uh, from a mutual standpoint, which sounds very much like what Sean McDermott has been doing with a lot of his play callers. So it's just very interesting to see guys that come from kind of uh, that coaching tree, um, how rife things can be between play callers. Um, it's it's not something you want to see in a building. You want to see everybody on the same page. Um, so that'll just be interesting to monitor. For sure. And a little quick tangent. Uh, we were talking about this the other day, but the, the Giants and the Chargers, uh, who we probably view very differently uh, agnostically or from an outside perspective, both only have four wins. It's kind of uh, crazy to think about. But uh, we already we already talked about the Chargers and Staley and Kellen Moore a little bit. Let's get into some positive stuff with the best performances from this weekend. We have a theme. All of them are going to be QBs this week, and all of them have at least four touchdowns. And the first one had five in Jalen Hurts, who led his team from a 10-point deficit. I believe they were down 10 uh, in the fourth quarter as well led his team back in overtime to a win over the Buffalo Bills in the rain, like you talked about. Uh, Jake Elliott had that really nutty, was it a 59-yarder in the rain that uh, it barely made it. Tony Romo was saying it could have gone from 65. No, no, it couldn't have. It could have gone from maybe 60. But uh, that was a really, really cool game to watch there. It, it was. And the, the cool part about it was is the Bills came out and they wanted to shut down the passing game. They were almost daring the Eagles to run. And the Eagles try to s stick to their game script in the first half. They fall in a 17-7 hole like they just had on Monday night against the Chiefs. And what do they do? They go in the halftime. They realize what's going on. They make the adjustments necessary. And then they pretty much run the rest of the game. Like They didn't have, um, I think Nate Tice on the Athletic was talking about this. In that second half, they really didn't have any pure dropbacks. A lot of stuff was mm -hmm. RPO or just runs, and they were able to take advantage of a lot of mismatches because of that. And so, like you said, Jalen Hurts, 
uh, led the league in touchdowns with five. He had three passing, two rushing. Uh, and it was just, it was an impressive performance to see from an efficiency standpoint. It wasn't all that great compared to the guys that we're going to talk about here shortly. And one of those was a guy that played on Thanksgiving. That was Dak Prescott in Dallas. Um, the Cowboys at home just, just torch teams. They, they make bad teams pay. And that's exactly what they did to Washington. Uh, he had a total of 20.5 total EPA, which is a lot to get over 20. There's only, uh, two quarterbacks that did that this past week. He had over 300 passing yards, four passing touchdowns, and just another dominant win. This is this is a team that gets in the driver's seat of most games by the third quarter and kind of cruises to the finish line. Yeah, I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Dallas scored in the first quarter, and then I think Washington came down and scored after them. It was either 7-7 seven to seven or 10-7. to seven. But after that, it was all Dallas. The game obviously ended 45-10. to 10. Washington was just hapless on offense and defense, and... Mike McCarthy has been using Dak in a lot of really good ways. You were talking about how as soon as he hits the back step of his drop the balls out, he's been incredibly efficient all year. And this was just another game where he showcased that. And he's going to be a guy we talk about later in the MVP discussion. Yeah, and rightfully so. This is this has been a very special stretch for Dak here. Uh, special stretch for Dallas just in general. Uh, and like you said, we'll get more into it later. But another guy that needs to be talked about, uh, he's he's won a Super Bowl in the past couple of years. And uh, he's impressed when he's been on the field so far this year uh, in Sean McVay's offense over in Los Angeles. And that's Matthew Stafford. I had a, a very impressive performance against the Cardinals. Uh, he had the highest success rate of the week uh, at 61.8%. And all that is is, it's showing how many plays that you had positive expected points added. So uh, are you moving the chains on a consistent basis is probably one of the better ways to think about it. Uh, he only had over 200 passing yards, but he had four passing touchdowns. And that was the uh, qualifier for our best performances this week. Yeah, he was just, uh, like you said, didn't have the total yards numbers, but he was just slicing and dicing, taking stuff underneath. Kyron Williams, who had a monster day on the ground rushing the ball, he, uh, he had him six times for 61 yards and two touchdowns with checkdowns. So he took what the Arizona Cardinals defense gave him, and he got the job done. And like you said, when he's been on the field and healthy, he's looked pretty impressive. It's just there's been some uh, inconsistency with his health this year and him being able to stay on the field. But hopefully they're able to keep him on the field the rest of the year so we can see what the Rams can do because I think they're still in the wild card hunt there at uh, five and six in the NFC. They are. And... The last performance that makes this list, uh, arguably it was the best performance of the week, but the previous three quarterbacks we've talked about uh, walked away with a win. Uh, this quarterback, unfortunately, didn't. Uh, got the ball first in overtime, wasn't able to drive down and put the nail in the coffin. But up to that point, Josh Allen and this new Joe Brady-led offense, again, where I talked about Dak Prescott going over 20 uh, points in total expected points added, uh, Josh Allen did the same thing with 21.7. He had two passing touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns, and 420 total yards. So uh, just dominant performance from him. He really put the team on his back. Um, and outside of just the bad miscommunication there at the end with Gabe Davis, just played a, a really flawless game for the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, like you're saying, he was lights out. He did throw the one pick, but that didn't really affect things too much. And then... He, he really put the team on his back despite some bad uh, 
game management from Sean McDermott. I know a lot of Bills fans that I know were angry <laughs> at the fact that they needed out with 20 seconds left in a timeout. I don't know if they could have gotten down the field in those conditions in 20 seconds, but he's I guess like one, he's I guess, Mahomes. That's yeah, that's the funny part. Yeah, he is, but we're never going to know, right? Because McDermott decided to kneel the ball out and go to overtime. And Josh Allen, well, he is 0-6 in overtime now, but not all of that is his fault. I mean, he was able to drive down the field after getting the ball first. Like you said, he did miss Gabe Davis there. It was a miscommunication. Uh, Joe Brady said in his presser today that it's not Gabe's fault. It's not Josh's fault. We got to do a better job of communicating there. But it did end up in a miss there, and obviously the Eagles were able to drive down, and Jalen Hurts was able to run it in for the win. But Josh Allen still had a really impressive game, and it seems that his new play caller in Joe Brady, who was his QB coach before, who probably has a pretty good rapport with him, has found how to work with him maybe a little bit better than Ken Dorsey was uh, these past two weeks. Now, it is a small sample size, so we're going to see going forward if that's sustainable. But uh, it, it looks pretty good for the Bills offense right now. Yeah, I would argue the Jets' performance was a little bit more impressive. The Eagles are mm -hmm. a below-average defense. Uh, their defensive line is absolutely disgusting, but when you look at the kind of their defensive performance overall, they are a defense that can kind of be picked apart. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, Joe Brady's wrinkles uh, kind of continue and he proves to be the kind of future offensive coordinator they're looking for. Uh, but getting in the coach talk now, Sean McDermott, the head coach, like you said, head-scratching decision at the end of regulation, uh, not giving his quarterback a chance. And I can understand weather conditions, whatnot. You don't want to make a mistake right before and just give them the game away right there in regulation. So there is an element of playing it safe there. But I, McDermott overall, like when you look at kind of how we attack the game, came out of the gates really well, kept everybody in check. And then when the other team made an adjustment, like so many times we would see before here in Carolina when he was here, he would fail to make the the proper adjustment afterwards. And he he was getting torched in the run game. He wasn't making wasn't able to make an adjustment for that. And you can definitely point to injuries and and other factors on that Bills defense. But again, it, he played prevent coverage in some of these instances where they needed to drive down the field. And you just wonder if he's the guy and how much longer he's going to be there in Buffalo. Because again, some of that game management and, and scheme that he, he deploys uh, is very questionable and it has the fans kind of irate at this point. You talk about adjustments, uh, particularly coming out of half. They held the Eagles to seven points in the first half and then 30 in the combined second half and overtime period. So like you said, he's not a, he's not on the same page coming out of the half and being able to kind of throw, continue to throw wrinkles at the opposing team's offenses as the, as the game goes on. Uh, obviously Hertz was able to adjust and got them to win there, but particularly in the fourth quarter is where Hertz was able to turn up. He hit, I believe, I think it was uh, Devonte Smith and Alameda Zacchaeus in the, yeah, in the fourth. Yep. And then he ran it in in overtime. Uh, but yeah, they were able to just come back and bounce back there. And that's something that get when he took over play calling. I know they had Leslie Frazier last year. A lot of Bills fans weren't too fond of Frazier. But I thought the game management side was a bit better. But when he took over the play calling duties, that's not something that you can uh, fully focus on. We saw that with Frank Reich. With all of uh, Reich's shortcomings as a play caller, I thought when he handed it to Thomas Brown, there were like little to no game managerial issues, but uh, that stuff reappeared when he took play calling back. So maybe that's something that uh, 
that's plaguing McDermott here, but I think it's part of a larger issue because I talked about Josh Allen being 0-6 in overtime games. Well, McDermott's 0-7. They had an overtime game before uh, Josh Allen was the quarterback there, and he lost that one there too. So maybe he's not really fit to be the head coach on a team that's looking to go the distance uh, because they're, they're still uh, – they might not be a Super Bowl contender this year because they're 6-6 six and six going into Week 13, but they're still a really strong team, and they're just falling below the mark this year. I don't think anybody expected them to be at 500 going into the uh, the deep stretch of the season here. And you wonder uh, – Eric Eager tweeted that uh, he's – a lot of people are trying to make the – the comparison that Sean McDermott was the Tony Dungy for the Indianapolis Colts. And he's probably more the Tony Dungy for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> he's probably the John Fox for the Denver Broncos. And it would be very interesting that if the ownership does a really uh, true look in the mirror of who their franchise is, where they're trying to head, and they realize McDermott isn't part of that, if they were the kind of change head coaches this year, would that be enough of a juice a step in the right direction because Gary Kubiak comes in. They win it first year in Denver with Peyton Manning and an aging quarterback and an offense that really didn't do much that year. And then John Gruden with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the year after Tony Dungy. So I, I'm not saying that's a recipe for success. It's just, I think, something that does legitimately need to be on the table, especially when you consider the talent that is on this roster. And I think we're already seeing the first steps of that with firing Dorsey. Uh, Dorsey was still a good play caller and uh, the head coach can't fire himself. We talked about that with Staley. So the writing may be on the wall there for McDermott, uh, a guy that's uh, in a more positive light this past week, instead of a guy that's uh, looking in the shadows right now, but uh, Mike Sullivan, the new, the acting offensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. This was an interesting stat since the Matt Canada tenure during the Matt Canada tenure, there are no 400 yard games on offense for the Steelers. The very last game before they hired Matt Canada, they had over 400 yards, none with him. And now the first game without him, 400 yard game. And that's that's largely in part due to Mike Sullivan, who was their QB's coach, taking over and calling plays for the Pittsburgh Steelers. What's funny is, is you use the word offensive coordinator and the way the Steelers did it is they made Eddie Faulkner, who I believe is their running backs coach, the offensive coordinator through the week like I guess he would manage practices kind of do some of those uh finer details and it was exactly like who you brought up Mike Sullivan the quarterback's coach who calls the plays. so it was almost like they said hey we're gonna make this a group collaborative effort split the responsibilities not put it all on one guy's shoulders which I thought it was smart like that's a that's a good way to go about it if you're going to kind of make that change mid-season and sure enough, it worked for them. This is the first time they've been over 400 yards since Matt Canada kind of took over. And it was it was refreshing to see. They they even left points on the field uh, with a drop Deontay Johnson touchdown early on. So it was it was different things like that that you go, okay, if if this is the offense that we're going to see moving forward, their running offenses look great since about week six. They can start getting Kenny Pickett into more favorable matchups against the defense and throwing the ball downfield. That this could be a team that's at least competitive in the playoffs and not just a team that that sneaks in because of an easy schedule and then gets trounced week one or round one. Well, you talk about their rushing attack. Najee Harris had a very good game, and this is a guy that has been kind of falling out of the limelight with the 
the emergence of Jalen Warren. Najee had a 99-yard game, just one yard short of 100. Had a touchdown. He averaged over six yards per carry, which is really good. And then as a Pat Fryermuth truther like myself, it was just really cool to see him getting involved again. Nine catches for 120 yards, which is insane for him, especially coming off the injury. But it seems like they found a way to use their weapons more than just, all right, spam Najee, spam Jalen Warren, uh, make George Pickens make the craziest catches ever, and uh, we'll be all right. And it, it, it worked out pretty well for him. I will say with Deontay Johnson, though, with him dropping the touchdown, there were some clips floating around on Twitter of him not really running his routes, not really blocking or anything. So there might be a uh, some disgruntlement there with him. But other than that, I thought the offense looked really good. Yeah, no, this is an offense that is starting to click. They do have an easier schedule down the stretch. So it's only going to make Matt Canada look that much worse. Um, but guys that are are a step above of what we're just talking about, just competent offensive play. And those are the guys that are going to be in our MVP watch. We talked about one earlier being Dak Prescott. He's second currently in EPA per play behind Brock Purdy, who's in Kyle Shanahan's system, surrounded by phenomenal playmakers. So definitely not shabby by any means. He's third in success rate. He's on pace for 4,500 passing yards and 35 passing touchdowns. So aggregate stats, he's on par for the course in terms of hitting those. Um, he's, he's really efficient. Uh, this offense looks really, really good. This is probably the best he's looked his entire career. I think the biggest thing for Dak going down the stretch is he's got to win the big games. He's got a big home matchup against Philadelphia upcoming. Uh, they have a game against Buffalo. Um, just And I think they have a game against Miami. So it's it's mm -hmm. three very pivotal games down the stretch that if you win those, you win out. Um, maybe you win the division. Maybe Maybe you can get that first seed. I know the percentages don't really favor it. Um, but we've seen a lot of crazier stuff in the past that I wouldn't put this out of the realm of possibilities and definitely something that's capable for a team that is just so talented top to bottom. We've talked throughout this season about it being a weaker MVP race, and I think that's true to uh, a certain degree. But I think Dak Prescott is starting to separate himself, at least in the counting stats and in, st in advanced stats like EPA, success rate, stuff like that, second EPA per play, like you said third and success rate. He's going to break the 40 or the 4,000 yard passing marks going to break the 30 touchdown mark. And he's playing lights out right now. He's really what's helping the team win. Granted. I mean, their defense is very good. Uh, I don't know if they're leading the league in takeaways, but they have the past couple years, but I think the offense is playing better quite frankly. And it's because of Dak Prescott being able to operate at such a high level. Now, like you said, is he going to be able to sustain that down the stretch against like really good teams? That remains to be seen. That's kind of been the uh, the white whale of his whole career, chasing those big wins. But uh, I think this might be a year where he kind finally breaks through, and they might end up with a couple playoff wins this year. I think that was something we talked about in our predictions episode. They they could break the divisional round curse. They could make it to that conference mm -hmm. championship. Maybe maybe they're in play for a Super Bowl run. Uh, that's yet to be seen, but it's definitely they have the nucleus for it. They shouldn't be um toss to the side um I, I think they're a team that can definitely make a run now uh the reigning super bowl champ reigning mvp uh patrick mahomes still has a stake in this race he's fourth in epa per play he's fifth in success rate so he's got those efficiency numbers um his success rate uh, is 50.5 percent so 
Uh, quarterbacks above that 50% threshold, like that's a good indicator that you should be talked about in this conversation. Again, he's on pace for 4,500 passing yards as well. Just shy of Dak's number, though, on a passing number uh, touchdown standpoint, he's he's on pace for 32, not 35. So that I think that's the difference. Um, I think the, the Cowboys look like the better team if the two were the face-off. Uh, I would definitely favor the Cowboys. Um, but again, I, I don't know if that should be the reason why Dak wins it. Well, Dak definitely benefits from having CeeDee Lamb and Brandon Cooks and uh, even Jake Ferguson to a degree. Patrick Mahomes' weapons this year, if Taylor Swift isn't in the audience, have been abysmal, quite frankly. Uh, they were missing a ton of receivers last week. I think Rasheed Rice finally had a nice uh, kind of breakout game. game for him. Uh, hopefully he might take the reins at wide receiver one moving forward. But I think Mahomes is a bit behind in these uh, counting stats because over the past month, uh, disregarding this past game, they were just really poor offensively, especially in the second half. They were, uh, I think, last in the league before this game. So it was the past five games disregarding this last game. They were last in the league in second half points. And that's like behind teams like us who don't score in the second half at all, barely. But uh, they've, they were able to rally this past week against a surprisingly stingy Raiders defense since interim head coach Antonio Pierce took over. I think Mahomes is back. I think that offense is back. Uh, I don't know if they were ever gone, but they were worse than they should have been, maybe. But uh, looking forward, I think Mahomes does have a stake in this MVP race. And you can never count him out, right? He's the best quarterback in the league. Yeah, and like we talked about last week, it's one of those things that people are overreacting to a like one game sample size. Mm -hmm. Like the Detroit Lions, there were a bunch of drops. Um, big reason why they lost that game. Uh, the Eagles game that they had uh, turnovers in the red zone. It's like if those don't happen, they probably win those games, and we aren't talking about them this way. Uh, they did have a couple stumbles, and Super Bowl hangovers are known to be a thing. So dealing with some of the Travis Kelsey injuries, dealing with some of the younger wide receivers. This was something that a lot of people knew was going to be a problem this year. They're working through those things, and they still look like one of the better teams in the AFC and the NFL as a whole. So uh, nothing to take away from them, but a guy that has succeeded both in Kansas City and his new home in Miami. I, I saw the meme uh, this past Sunday, and it was uh, Tyreek Hill, uh, in Kansas City and Miami, kind of those two demographics that we were just talking about. It was the Lightning McQueen. It was him in his uh, oh, rusty in the, in the red, red job, yeah. and then the Dynaco blue. And sure <laughs> enough, like he retweeted it, he, and it, the, he put in quotation marks, "I am speed." And it was just, it was a very fitting comparison. I thought it was a great meme over the weekend. And Tyree Kill deserves to be in this conversation. I think he should be top three in this. He's currently uh, on pace for 135 receptions. Uh, 2,050 receiving yards, which would be an NFL record. Like that, that would be huge. That would be a big milestone. And then 15 receiving touchdowns. So from a reception standpoint, from a touchdown standpoint, those are impressive, but it's the yardage standpoint and just how he's been able to force so many different coverages um, from the defense. And yet he's still able to produce is, is kind of mind boggling. It's, it's crazy to think about. And I, I, I think he deserves to be here. Uh, yeah, I am speed perfectly describes him, right? He's not slowing down at all as he gets older. Uh, hopefully he keeps this up for years to come so he can continue to watch. But like you said, if he's on pace for 2K yards and he might triple crown on a very good offense, he should very well be on this list, maybe even higher than some of the other guys that we have here. He's definitely the thing that puts the Dolphins offense 
like further ahead of all these other offenses in the league. Like without the Dolphins or without him uh, playing, the Dolphins are like four and one or something. And yeah, they eke out wins, but with him, they're just superb. They're, like there's there's no way you can plan for Tyree Kill with his speed and quickness at the same level of his mm-hmm. speed. And he's just he's the true like I know McCaffrey's a superstar. I know some of these QBs are very good. Terry Kill is the true game breaker on offense in the NFL. There's just nothing you can really do, especially with a brilliant mind like Mike McDaniel uh, putting him in motion and deploying him in so many different ways. Yeah, Mike McDaniel was the perfect coach to trade for him. I mean, they go from Andy Reid to Mike McDaniel has been such a, a pleasure to watch uh, as, as a fan, just how he's been deployed. And he has just been a weapon wherever he's gone. He is his quickness, his speed. He's able to utilize those. And it's, it's something that we really haven't seen from any other player because it's that combination. Like I remember it was a play against the Patriots back when he was with the chiefs and he, he caught a pass and then was able to flip his hips. And it was like, he didn't lose a step. And, ran right by the safety for like a touchdown. And it, it, it's it's crazy plays like that that he's able to make and still make um, in his third contract here in the NFL. So it's, it's very impressive to see. Uh, another guy we'll touch on, and it's a guy that um, has helped his team win whenever he's been on the field, whenever he's been healthy. He is a true difference maker. I don't think the stats reflect as much of his impact is on the field, especially with a new play caller and Todd Monk in this year, but it's Lamar Jackson. He's 15th in EPA per play, uh, eight, eighth in success rate. So um, he's, he's, he's a good quarterback. He's not great this year from those efficiency metrics. He is on pace for 4,500 total yards. So that includes passing and rushing and then only 25 total touchdowns. So a little below the 30 plus touchdown marks that we're seeing Mahomes and Dak projected to get. Um, but still, solid year. Um, if the team ends up winning uh, the number one seed in the AFC, I think he should be in the conversation. Um, it's just some of those those stats, whether it be counting or efficiency metrics, um, just don't seem to lend themselves to his his favor in this discussion. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree there. He's not going to have the counting stats, uh, especially because they have such a potent run game where uh, Gus Edwards is able to poach a lot of his touchdowns. But uh, And now uh, undrafted rookie Keaton Mitchell out of Eastern Carolina. Shout out any Carolina school except for Duke. But uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's putting up numbers there. And I think Lamar Jackson, the thing about him is he makes the plays to help the team win. He doesn't have like the flashy numbers per se, but – the way he's able to like evade uh, pressure, move in the pocket, uh, throw downfield to his newer weapons that are actually beneficial for him. And Zay Flowers, who had an outstanding game against L.A. and Odell Beckham, the way he's able to move the ball to them and stuff like that, I think is uh, really underrated in the QB discussion among the top end QBs in the league. But like you said, if they end up with that one seed and he ends up beefing his counting stats up a bit, maybe to 30 touchdowns, maybe he gets into the top 10 of EPA per play or something like that. He should certainly be in the discussion. Absolutely. And with that, uh, that wraps up the MVP watch for this week. Uh, I think this is, we're at the point in the season where this list probably won't change too, too much unless uh, like, what you're talking about, Lamar Jackson goes on a stretch from a statistical standpoint. The Bills win out because Josh Allen, from a number standpoint, he's there, uh, but six and six and a team that's probably looking to be outside of the playoff picture probably isn't going to have the MVP. Um, 
Well, I, I want to add uh, I want to add Jalen Hurts into that too, but just because they're ten and one, and uh, he his counting stats certainly should. I believe they're already better than Lamar. So he's led his team to a really good heights this year, and if they keep it up, he should certainly be in the discussion as well. And he's been great when he's been down. Like that's that's mm-hmm. the one thing that you can give uh, to Jalen Hurts' camp is that uh, when when they face deficits, their offense turns up, and that's that's what you want to see. Like that's that's what makes you an MVP is is that uh, and, regardless of the stakes, you can come back. And they win the big games too. They beat they the have. Chiefs and the Bills, and now they have a test against the 49ers this week. And, and they beat the Cowboys before that. So it's one of those mm-hmm. things that this was a gauntlet stretch that we talked about. And we were talking about, oh, well, if they just go two and three down the stretch and they're three and oh right out of the gate. And it's like, OK, uh, if they beat the 49ers at home and, and they just lose to the Cowboys away on the road, like you you come out of that stretch four and one, three and two. Like it's it's definitely something where like this is this was impressive how they kind of face the, that adversity. For sure. And now we ha- we do have the upcoming Panthers game this week with a new head coach in Chris Tabor. And we are wearing our nice blue jerseys against Baker Mayfield and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You see, I'm, I'm going to remember like old highlights uh, when we used to go down there with Julius Peppers, Steve Smith, Jake DeLome. Uh, I know there was one time in our blue jerseys, uh, Steve Smith absolutely torched him, did a uh, Buccaneer uh, dance in the end zone. Uh, that That's the stuff I'm going to remind myself of watching this game because there's probably going to be very little offensive production against this Todd Bowles defense. They have a very strong interior, and that's that's where we're weak on our offensive line. So I don't think Bryce Young's going to have a lot of time in the pocket. Um, our wide receivers can't get separation, so I could definitely see this being uh, a Todd Bowles defense that makes the most of their opportunities and has a few turnovers, whether it be fumbles or interceptions. Uh, and then on the other side, Baker Mayfield has been playing uh, solid football this year. Uh, he hasn't been helped out from the the drop standpoint uh, with some of his wide receivers. But at the same time, Mike Evans has climbed the ladder and made some big boy circus catches throughout the year as well. So it's one of those things that if they can turn up and they can put 20 points on the board, I don't think we're beating them. Uh, for some reason, our defense can keep this to a 13-10 game. We might have a chance. But again, that's going to come down to our offense not making mistakes and giving uh, this Bucks offense a short field at home. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't say that Baker's been playing at a Hall of Fame level. Uh, He might be just under that, but uh, he's playing solid for sure. He's distributing the ball, and like you said, the drops haven't been helping him. And to me, the key to the game, or keys to the game, are on that defensive side. We need J.C. Horn to come back this week. He's been uh, practicing the past couple weeks. He's been flirting with being uh, questionable on game day. But we need him this week. We saw what happened last year. When we were in the thick of the playoff race, I believe it was week 17, right? Where uh, JC was yep. out, and then I think uh, Dante also got injured that game. Oh, we saw Henderson. what uh, we saw what Mike Evans did to CJ Henderson and Keith Taylor Jr. He just ran past him, and granted, they don't have Tom Brady throwing him the ball where Brady can instantly recognize it and say, all right, go route, go. But Baker's played solid this year, and he can get the ball to Mike Evans when he needs to. So we really need JC to be back, and... If JC's not back, we need guys like uh, Deshaun Jameson, uh, Dante Jackson to really lock in on the receivers because despite all the injuries and the agingness of agingness, I guess, of uh, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, they're still very effective receivers. And their O-line is very, very good this year. So our back end is going to have to hold up. And then I don't know how they're going to do it, but like you said, our offensive line has to play well against their D-line. 
they have to do something about the interior, like maybe designate uh, Chenault if he plays to be like a, an interior blocker as well or something like that, or pull a tight end to help block. But who knows what uh, what schemes that Thomas Brown's going to have to whip up to protect Bryce this game. And then a couple other things. We need to rotate our playmakers. We talked about how uh, Amir Smith-Marset got a touch, then wasn't looked at for the rest of the game. Uh, we talked about how Thielen and Mingo kind of dominate we just mix and match some of our receivers. Uh, put Terrace Marshall in for a series. Put uh, some practice squad guys in, like Michael Strawn, who had the nice play against the Bears. That's what we need to give Mingo and Thielen and Chark some, just some water breaks because they're out there for almost every other play. And then the last one, I talked about LaVisca Chanel, who finally came back this week. We uh, DNP'd Raheem Blackshear, who is the league leader in kick yards per return, for Chanel. I don't understand that because Blackshear is definitely a better returner. Uh, he's one of the best in the league, if not the best on kick returns. So when we have an advantage, we need to stick to that. Uh, maybe keep him active for this game day. That's uh, that's my uh, novel idea for the Panthers this week. Yeah, it was it was a little shocking that they did that. I understand you got Chanel back from injuries that he's been dealing with this season, and, and you want to get him involved, but that doesn't mean you take away snaps or plays for a guy that's been producing for you and has been an unsung hero on uh, Bill's teams and then our team this year and, and making a couple plays and making the most of those opportunities. So um, it was definitely a head scratching decision there. Uh, hopefully that, like you said, that we have more rotations. Uh, we see a couple shot plays to Amir Smith, Marset, or uh, something to where we're getting the balls to, to some of these other guys uh, that that deserve a couple reps. Because like you said, it's it's DJ Chark and Mingo aren't world beaters, uh, and they need they need some rest if they're going to make the most of their opportunities when they get those. Um, and so hopefully we'll see that this game. Um, I don't know if Thomas Brown was uh, super big on the rotations when he was calling plays, but I don't know if with Jim Caldwell uh, now kind of in the mix with some of this, if we'll see some of that, if we'll see some more 12 personnel like we have to get some mass mismatches. Uh, get some play action going so that Bryce isn't dropping back and then watching the pocket collapse right in front of them. Um, it's it's different things like that that you hope they watch film, they make the adjustments they need to, and and we're well prepared to protect the ball and make the plays that are available when they they, they come about. So uh, going into that, uh, we did have uh, some great college football games this past weekend. And it's funny, it's whenever I'm out of town with my girlfriend, uh, I watch the most college football. Uh, I, I do everything uh, but watch college football during my regular Saturdays. But in this case, I caught the Ohio State-Michigan game. I, I caught parts of the Washington-Washington State game and then was keeping tabs on the Auburn-Alabama game, the classic Iron Bowl, and that went down to a wild finish. Uh, but I think what we'll start with, uh, we'll, we'll start with the more classic rivalry or what what's called the game uh, when this weekend comes about every year. Uh, what were your big takeaways from Michigan and Ohio State uh, in this 30-24 to 24 win for the Wolverines? Uh, well, it's definitely the second best rivalry in college football, so I think it's worthy of being called the game. But uh, you were actually texting texting me during the game, and uh, you talked about, what is Ryan Day doing? That's the Ohio State uh, <laughs> head coach and play caller. And I was like, is this your first time watching Ohio State under his tenure? Because he does everything uh, very, very conservative. Uh, 
their quarterback, Kyle McCord, was not making the game easy for them. But when they had their chances, Day just didn't really uh, put the ball in his playmaker's hands. Marvin Harrison Jr. did not have a superstar game. He only had a couple catches. Now, granted, he made the most out of those catches, but they were few and far between. I think the guys that really shined for Ohio State's offense were Travion Henderson, who's finally healthy. He's probably going to end up as my running back one this year. He's just super explosive and shifty. And then Emeka Buko is finally back. That's uh, Ohio State's second receiver. He's a guy that was talked about as being a first-rounder, but he's been banged up throughout the year. But it was key to see how they needed him to perform, and he performed very well uh, underneath and over the middle. But what stood out for me was Michigan's defense. Obviously, they won the game. Uh, McCourt threw a couple of interceptions, and Michigan won the game on an interception that uh, safety Rod Moore caught from McCord. Uh, this was just a really interesting game to see which QB was worse. And McCord was definitely the one that was more worse, I guess, because McCarthy, while he didn't make too many throws, he made a couple of very, very good ones. And that was the difference. Yeah, it was it was the interception early on, because exactly like what you said, the Ryan Day comment, I texted you. It was a fourth and one that they had around midfield and Michigan. Uh, by all means, they are a very conservative team as well, but they had some of these fourth and shorts and they were going for it. And it's you're, you're going up against the rival. You're on the road. you got to make the most of those opportunities in their very next possession. They're backed up by their goal line. He throws a bad interception trying to get the ball to the Marvin Harrison, his playmaker, and he just doesn't see the defender, uh, Will Johnson, right there. And that was the difference maker. You talk about a six-point game at the end of regulation, like – that is what set up an easy touchdown. It, it, it created a lead that was very hard to come back from, and they were never able to the, the surmount. And it's it's just hard to do that when you have conservative play calling, when you have a bad quarterback in McCord, um, and you aren't able to get the ball to your playmakers. Because like you said, Marvin Harrison, he had a solid game. He had the touchdown at the end that that brought it within that one possession. Um, but it, it, it was just too, too little too late. And here's the crux of the whole Ryan Day, Ohio State tenure. They're probably losing their entire front seven to the draft, if I had to uh, guess there, because all of them are draft eligible and draft worthy. They have guys like uh, JT Tuomaloa, who we know as the guy who wrecked the Penn State game a couple years ago, uh, was wreaking havoc in the Georgia playoff game, uh, crushed Penn State again this year. He's going to be drafted. He'll probably be a first rounder, the edge rusher. Both of their interior guys will probably be day two guys. And then uh, Jack Sawyer, the other edge rusher, he'll probably go day two, early day three. Then both of their linebackers in uh, Tommy Eichenberg, who was like LB one or two last year, came back. He's going to go early. Uh, Steel Chambers, their other linebacker, is going to go early. And then Denzel Burke, their star corner, he's going to be drafted. And then you look at the offensive side of the ball. They're going to be losing Marvin Harrison Jr., obviously. Emeka Ibuka, Trevion Henderson, uh, a couple of their O-line, uh, especially Donovan Jackson, he'll go early. So they're losing a ton of talent. And obviously, it's Ohio State. They have good recruits every year. But they're losing really, really top-end guys that they're not going to be able to replace from uh, younger players. So this was kind of the the last straw, I think, for Ryan Day to beat Michigan because he's 1-3 against them and 0-3 and in the last three. And so this has really been a Michigan one-sided rivalry the past couple of years. And I think that I was, I was personally surprised that they kept him uh, because I know he's been 11-1 and every regular season of the past – or. 11 and 1, 11 and 1, 6 and 0 because of the COVID year, and then 11 and 1, or 10 and 1 prior to that, 10 and 2, excuse me, prior to that. But um, I think this was really the chance to show he's got it. And the expectation at Ohio State is to beat Michigan because I was talking to you about this earlier. They're gifted wins in such a weak conference. 
Um, and they weren't able to do it. And so I think his days there are numbered. And a team that I thought he might go to but didn't end up going to was Texas A&M. They, played, they obviously fired Jimbo Fisher after this game. They played LSU this past week in rivalry week. I think the main takeaways here are, one, Malik Neighbors, really good receiver. He's going to be a top 16 So explosive. Pick. I, yeah, I, he, I honestly like him over Odunze and some of these other guys because yeah. it's just – his ability after like catching the ball is just it's exciting to see it's like what made justin jefferson and jamar chase really special coming out of the draft and if this is like kind of the lsu wide receiver prototype like i'm here for it like this is a guy that can really change a wide receiver room and give you a true number one my initial comp for him is like a more juiced up dj Moore. i think that's a pretty good descriptor that's, that's for perfect him. yeah he's, he's um, great with that yak and yeah, he was outstanding. Had some leaping touchdown catches here. Uh, Brian Thomas Jr., their other really good receiver that's going to be in this draft. He had that crazy uh, moss in the back of the right cor- back right corner of the end zone. He's outstanding as well. It wouldn't surprise me if he made it into round one, but I think that's a guy that us Panthers fans should be happy with at 33 or 34, wherever we end up picking in the second round. But the like, big like one is said, that um, I think it was last week. He'd be a phenomenal X receiver, which is what we uh, yeah. need, especially with a guy like Mingo and Thielen still kind of on the roster. You want those guys to work inside and him to kind of destroy that outside. And yeah, I think he has the ability to do that. Yeah, both his uh, like quickness, burst, long speed, and his uh, his body uh, control and verticality when he's making jump uh, jump ball catches are really really good. And then Jaden Daniels, their star quarterback, obviously. I think he's played himself into like first half of round one territory. Uh, after the first two QBs, it's kind of nebulous, but I think he's going to emerge as QB three, and he should be the Heisman winner. I think this is the game that really put him over the top. If none of the other games did it, where he had like a 300-yard passing, 200-yard rushing, five total touchdowns, whatever, which he did a bunch this year. I think this is the game against a very good Texas A&M defense. That should put him over the top. It's going to be a real travesty if they hand it to Bo Nix or Michael Penix when Jaden Daniels, to me, has been the most impressive QB this year in college football. Yeah. No, I, I think that's uh, very fair to say. The numbers he's put up are very comparable. Uh, they're better than that Joe Burrow season when he won the mm-hmm. national title. Um, but moving on into a game that was a little bit more competitive uh, this rivalry week, came right down to the wire, um, kind of had the the reverse uh what what outcome uh in terms of the rivalry of the kick six but you guys had a fourth and 26 you guys no 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 no, no. fourth and oh, we 31 to, fourth and 31 that's right mm-hmm. fourth and 31 uh jalen milrow drops back he finds number 17 in the back of the end zone everybody goes nuts and you're a bama fan you can talk more about the game but it was something about like where you were saying i was very active with sending you stuff this this past weekend i it, Auburn was up this game. I, I thought it was going to be an upset. I thought you were going to be depressed for most of Sunday. Uh, but you, you, you got the high. Uh, you pulled out the win. So I'm sure that was very relieving when that touchdown happened. Um, but what, what were your key takeaways uh, as a Bama fan? Do you guys think you have a shot at Georgia next week? Well, you talk about this game being closer than it was. And if this were an, like if this were like Ole Miss and it were week five or when at week four i think is when bama played him and it was this close to be like yeah we should have beaten him by more but rivalry rivalry week it's hard to say is like true football wars all the big rivalries like ohio state michigan the iron bowl 
the Apple Cup, which is Washington, Washington State. Uh, Washington State had no business in that game, but that was a close game. All these big rivalries, FSU, Florida, another one that went down to the wire till the fourth. All of these rivalries produced close scoring games and really, really uh, well played games. And it came down to that fourth and 31, like you said. Uh, some later information revealed that it shouldn't have been that because there should have been some penalties on Auburn that caused uh, some of the the backups to happen there. But it ended up making for a really good ending where Milrow found Isaiah Bond in the back of the end zone. And it's crazy because Jalen Hurts on a very similar play, uh, I think it was also 31 yards away, found Alameda Zacchaeus in that same back corner of the end zone to give them the lead late in the fourth quarter in that uh Eagles Bills game. So interesting parallel there, but uh I do think moving forward that this team does have a shot to beat Georgia. And I, I know that's uh, blasphemous to say Georgia hasn't lost in two years, but if any team can do it, it's uh this Alabama team with Jalen Milrow playing at such a high level. It's really uh, inspiring to see his growth throughout the season where he was benched after the, uh, the Texas loss and he's uh, improved steadily over every week. And this past week he zero turnovers, uh, he, he gets the job done. And then another guy I wanted to highlight for Alabama in this game, and especially all year, is Terry and Arnold, the corner two next to Kool-Aid McKinstry. I actually think that Arnold's played better than McKinstry this season. He's uh, he's had a lot more pass breakups. He's stuck to his man a bit better. And he's a guy that should be in serious consideration for like round two uh, draft grades, I think, moving forward this season. He's shown everything. He's improved a ton after being put in a new role from the Pete Golding defense last year. And if anybody knows who Pete Golding is, he's uh, one of the worst defensive play callers in college football. I can't believe he was Alabama's defensive coordinator last year. But uh, they moved on to bigger and better things, and he's really shined this year. And then there were a couple – There, I mean, there were obviously a ton of rivalries this week because it's rivalry week, but there are a couple more I wanted to touch on quickly. FSU Florida. Uh, Florida – put up more of a fight than probably they should have, but FSU pulled away there in the end. They have a ton of great skill players. As we know, Keon Coleman's going to be a first rounder, Johnny Wilson, the six, seven receiver. Uh, I, I said this when Tage was on the pod, but if he had actual hands, he'd be a monster receiver. He just drops a ton. And then Trey Benson, their running back is a good thumper in the middle. And then the other one is uh, I know there's a lot of uh, Colorado fans this year that uh, kind of just popped up out of nowhere. But uh, Colorado-Utah, this was uh, a game where Shador Sanders did not play. He has a uh, a back injury, I believe. But Colorado started this year on a really big high. They started 3-0. We all remember their wins over TCU and then Nebraska and then, uh, what was it, Colorado State, right? Uh, Week three, that was where Travis Hunter got knocked out. Um, But they ended the year 4-8. They ended one, like after those three wins, ended 1-8, which isn't a totally great look for this team and they've been losing recruits the past couple of days uh probably due to the result of the season and i'm hopeful that uh deon sanders is able to turn things around and like kind of keep the ship moving in the right direction because like he's we've heard that shador sanders is coming back travis hunter will obviously be there uh and step into a bigger role next year because he'll be draft eligible next year but hopefully they're able to keep the ship moving forward after a uh early poor end to the season where they started super well you're hearing a lot of these big name uh, commits uh, kind of pull pull that and it's it's creating this whole like media ordeal. But at the end of the day, uh, this was a team that had three or four really good players that kind of put them over the top. Uh, they played well, they played hard, um, but they they just got kind of 
I, I wouldn't say exposed. I think exposed is too hard of a word, but it's one of those things that this is a first year in a program. You're trying to turn some things around. They're going to still have a strong recruiting class next year. And I think they're going to get better. You, you still got to remember that after that three game win streak, I think they, they played Oregon. Didn't they play USC? Like they played some, mm-hmm. they some, played some, USC surprisingly close too. It was a seven point game, 49, 42. And, and that's the thing. It's like you're seeing them be competitive. They lost this last game without their starting quarterback, uh, who's been very impactful for their success this year. So while it is a slump, why one and eight is not great. Um, and these these uh, guys decommitting isn't isn't phenomenal to hear. They're still in a better place than I think they were last year. And it will be very interesting to see how they do next year and kind of rebound from this kind of collapse. Absolutely. Uh, they they probably beat expectations this year after going 1-11 last year. And once they get some O-line and D-line recruits in, I think they're really going to improve because you said you don't want to say they were exposed. I'll say they were exposed because their O-line and D-line were terrible. I think that's where uh, Coach Prime missed the mark in his recruiting. Granted, he, uh, he kind of purged the roster when he got there and didn't really have much to work with from that standpoint. And I know he's not recruiting well in the state of Colorado for those recruits, but that's one area he really needs to focus on. And I think his clout and their uh, their uptick in success is one way he can do that moving forward. And then this weekend is championship weekend. A uh, lot of aspirations for a lot of teams this weekend. I know it's going to be a tight college football playoff race. I think we can guarantee that Michigan's going to be in there. I think that's the, the only true safe one. We have uh, New Mexico State Liberty. on. Uh, that's going to be a good one. Uh, and then the other non-P5 ones are Miami of Ohio versus Toledo and then uh, SMU Southern Methodist against Tulane. But the uh, the P5 conference championships, and this is the last year we're going to have the P5, obviously, due to the exodus of the Pac-12 teams, which is it's kind of sad to think about because this college football has probably been my favorite sport to watch growing up and watched. I was there when they were the Pac-10 and seeing the Pac-12 and now everything's changing. So it's kind of sad to see, but we're seeing two of the best of the Pac-12 play on Friday this week in Oregon and Washington. That's going to be a really good one. If Washington wins, they're in. If Oregon wins, they need some stuff to go their way, obviously. Then at noon on Saturday, we have Oklahoma State and Texas. I think if Texas wins, they're probably in because they beat Alabama head-to-head, which is obviously a big uh, big tiebreaker there. Then at 4 o'clock on Saturday, the big one, Georgia and Alabama. Obviously, if Georgia wins, they're in, number one team. And if Alabama wins, it's going to be interesting because I think, like bias aside, I think they've had a more impressive season than Oregon, but the committee currently has Oregon ranked ahead of them. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Michigan, Iowa, I expect Michigan to kind of take that one pretty easily. And then Louisville, Florida State. And without Jordan Travis, Florida State's QB that was lost to them a couple weeks ago, I think that's going to be an interesting one. Uh, this would have been a revenge revenge game for Jordan Travis because he started at Louisville. He was actually the same recruiting class as Tutu Atwell, who's been in the league a couple years now. But uh, that this is going to be an interesting one for sure. I do think uh, Louisville has a good chance to win this. And uh, if Florida State loses to me, they're out. They're by far the worst team out of the top eight, I would say. Um, so that's going to be an interesting one too. So I think for sure Michigan's in. And then from there, it's who wins and who doesn't win. So you have like Washington, Oregon, Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Florida State, all vying for that last spot. And I don't think Ohio State can get in at all unless uh, like some blowouts happen. 
The only way, yeah, they sneak in, I would think, is if Washington and Georgia handle business and pretty much make Oregon and Alabama a two-loss team and then Florida State loses. Because at that rate, I think the argument would be that the top three teams are Georgia, Michigan, Washington, and then uh, Ohio State. I think that's the only way they get in. Uh, it's definitely possible. Uh, Washington's already beaten Oregon this year. Uh, Georgia, Alabama, I think Georgia is the better team. We'll see if that's the case on Saturday. Um, and then, then like you said, Louis, uh, Louisville, Florida State, That's uh, Florida State's probably the weakest of those teams. So definitely possible. Uh, I think if Alabama is going to get in, we kind of talked about the scenarios that if they upset and uh, Oregon upsets, uh, Washington that Alabama, I think should jump above Oregon and Washington, uh, when it's all said and done beating arguably the best team in the country outside of Michigan. So, uh, we'll see how it all plays out. I know you're rooting for Bama and some of those scenarios that shake out for them uh, and roll tide. Um, I'm not in support of that necessarily just saying it, um, yeah, but you no, are. It, it should be a good game. Uh, is there any, any other thing that you have to wrap up, whether it be draft related, um, uh, this week's game or are, are we ready for perfect takes? Yeah, let's, uh, let's throw our perfect takes out there. I kind of alluded to this before uh, seeing as how the Panthers have some new management throughout the rest of the year, but there's a thing that kind of happens when you get an interim head coach and they coach their first game where the team really uh, resonates with them and comes out and performs and gets the win there. It didn't happen with Steve Wilkes last year when we played the Rams, although it was close but uh, with Antonio Pierce this year and the Raiders, and even when they had Rich Passaccia, I think they won their first game there. So my take is going to be pending the injury status of guys <laughs> like uh, J.C. Horn and C.J. Henderson, because that's a big deal. But pending that, assuming Horn's going to play, because I think this is his last week of uh, activation eligibility from injured reserve, my take is that your Carolina Panthers and my Panthers will benefit from the interim head coach first game phenomenon, first game tax, whatever you want to call it, as they head into Tampa Bay wearing their process blue uniforms, and they're going to get the win over our old friend Baker Mayfield. Yeah, I, I feel like it could be a revenge game for him. Like I said, like you said, I think it is dependent on kind of the injury report on how competitive we're going to be this game, but. Uh, definitely pulling for the Panthers, definitely pulling for the interim boost of morale that should hopefully be in the locker room to play harder because at this point, guys are playing for their jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the play in the NFL, it's, it's a short-lived career. Uh, roster turnover is a real thing. Uh, what some of Tepper's comments today about how things can change very quickly in the next two years is very true. And so we should be optimistic about the future, even though today is pretty rough. Um, just from everything that's that's been going on the past week. Uh, but my take will actually be in regards to uh, somebody we brought up in the coach talk, Mike Sullivan, and that Steelers offense will churn out a 30-point performance for the <gasps> first time this season. I know, they're playing the Cardinals at home. I, I like them. I like their run game. I feel like they can just punish the Cardinals all day with that. It'll give them some play-action looks. Uh, for Kenny Pickett downfield, and I think they take advantage of it. I think they they run up the score. Maybe maybe they sneak in a defensive touchdown to get me over that 30-point total, but I think they'll have 30 points uh, by the end of Sunday. I, can, I think that's a competitive game, uh, Pittsburgh-Arizona. I think I currently have Arizona in our pick'ems, but uh, I'm kind of back and forth on that one. But 30 points is quite the threshold for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, before we sign off, I want to look at um, – 
I want to see when their last 30-point game was. It wasn't um, this year. I think the most they've scored yeah. this year was a 24 uh the 17 no, win they had against the Rams. 26 points versus the Browns this year they had. Oh yes, um, yes. They they were over that. Um I'm looking last year. I, I'm seeing November 20th of last yep. year they Cincinnati. played the Bengals. Yeah, and lost 37 to 30 in a game where uh Kenny Pickett had one passing touchdown. Najee Harris had two rushing touchdowns. Did they get a defensive touchdown, or was it all field goals no. from there? It was I all field goals. Okay. Yeah. And the the Bengals were wearing their uh, icy. Oh, that was a good uniform matchup game. The icy whites <laughs> versus the Pittsburgh uh, black and yellows. But uh, that's uh, that's quite the take, and I am all here for it. I'm actually gonna switch to the Steelers to support that outcome happening. Oh, there we go. There we go. Our pickums will get posted uh, later this week. We'll hopefully post our Thursday games before the Thursday night game. I think we're both on board that the Cowboys will win just in case we don't get that post in. Uh, if you guys have any questions for the podcast, shoot them to us at perfect underscore takes on Twitter. Um, definitely trying to grow the following a little bit. Uh, we've had fun 21 episodes into it as we head into the uh, pretty much the last quarter of the season. It's kind of crazy how fast it's come and gone. Uh, but we're looking forward the next week and definitely the off season as we rebuild this team. Uh, we'll catch you guys next week.